bit last episode about American mythmaking and about how, you know, uh, Americans have had to be, I think, a lot more intentional in their making of national myths than um, countries with a longer heritage. Um, and we certainly see that from a Canadian perspective uh, when we look at how anemic and young and ridiculous our national myths are. That, um, you know, our current national myth of like how old our country is and what it was made for um, was really created between 1965 and 1982 by um, Pierre Trudeau and Lester Pearson. Um, and if Stephen Harper had only had more time and been less overworked, um, it would have been erased uh, during his majority government when he set up the 1812 Secretariat and decided we were going to celebrate Canada's 200th birthday in 2014. Anyway, that didn't really come together. But, and so we're still stuck with the uh, liberal founding myth that we began building in 1965 at the behest of the American government. Um, the, uh, and we don't need to get into the weirdness of Canada because it's irrelevant. It really is barely important to Canadians, uh, certainly not um, for this larger scholarly project. Instead, we'll get back into the great American myth. Now, the term the Pilgrim Fathers, right, is a pretty standard term that exists in American narrations of their story. Um, this is a way, and this is very, very much based on the sort of Protestant ethos on which America was founded. The repurposing of the term Pilgrim to refer to people that they were trying to describe as religious refugees um, is a very Protestant thing to do, because prior to Protestantism, there was, of course, a venerable tradition of pilgrimage about 800 years old. Um, it was a tradition that had been developed by the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox churches to compete with the Hajj, right, that holy obligation where every adult Muslim man who can afford to is required to go to Mecca once in his life. Um, the Hajj, hugely important in the development of the world economy. That's something I've covered in other courses. But we have to remember that from the beginning, the idea of pilgrimage um, initially was about how Christian churches sought to compete with Islam. And so the first thing that um, Christian churches focused on in that competition was um, pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Uh, the idea that, um, and the Muslims running Jerusalem when this idea gained currency um, were pretty good with it because it brought a lot of tourism dollars into the Levant. Uh, Christians, and of course, there was a system for managing Christians. It wasn't like there weren't already a bunch of Christians there. And so the European tradition of pilgrimage um, can really be traced to this 8th century response to the inauguration of the Hajj as a global religious ritual and obligation. Now, Pilgrimage was overwhelmingly, almost exclusively focused on Jerusalem until um, the military conflict with Saladin, the um, uh, Muslim caliph in the Middle Ages. And the Christians, uh, of course, engaged in crusades, efforts to annex areas of the Middle East, including Jerusalem, to the control of European Latin Christians. Uh, and that annexation um, really pissed off the Muslims running that area. It also pissed off some of the local Christians, honestly, 
who were promptly tried for heresy for believing in their local Christian beliefs. And I don't think most of the Jewish residents were particularly thrilled uh, with um, the annexation of Jerusalem and Acre, but Jonathan's gonna say a few words about that so we don't fall behind. Um. You shook your fingers, so I thought I would I would prompt you when you were oh, shaking sorry. your fingers. Yeah, no, not definitely not not happy with that. Um, <laughs> I mean, personal connections aside, it was kind of a bad scene. <laughs> I don't think Saladin was the caliph, though. Um, no, he he was only recognized posthumously um, as caliph by some of the caliphates. A number oh. of the caliphates that speciated because he was about the fall of the Abbasids. And so many caliphates derived their theory of legitimacy from Saladin. I think the Idrisids were one. So never, he was never the Abbasid or Umayyad caliph, but the effect and then the historical response I uh, involve people founding dynasties of caliphs all over North Africa and the Middle East and making solid in the first one. Okay. No, I, I should I should have known that that you wouldn't make a simple mistake. You would do something that was <laughs> no, I'll incredibly make a complex complexly mistake. correct and wrong in ancient <laughs> ways simultaneously. <laughs> okay, that's where we are. So yes, it's true that Saladin never stated he was the caliph and the Abbasids never recognized him as such and they were the primary Muslim empire. However, um, what, happened, uh, what happened in this conflict with the success of the Crusades was that Saladin and other Muslim rulers retaliated against the Christians by shutting down pilgrimage routes and ceasing, continuing to admit Eastern Orthodox Christians to Jerusalem, Acre and other places Bethlehem, but ceasing to admit Latin Christians uh, as a punishment for the Crusades. Uh, what followed is a fascinating thing that one of our courses will be all about, but it's a thing that I just keep referencing peripherally right now, which is that this led to the rise of the Replica Jerusalem movement. And the Replica Jerusalem movement the attempt to create miniature theme parks um, based on Jerusalem with the same layout all over Europe and um, other Christian controlled places was really the beginning of what we might think of as the Christian pilgrimage tradition. And fairly quickly, people moved from making these replica Jerusalems their pilgrimage site Christians outside of Africa gave up on that idea pretty early and instead began to focus their pilgrimage on the cult of saints. The, um, uh, and often pilgrimage routes would follow a narrative in a saint's life. So Santiago de Compostela, for instance, is not, it's not just that the destination is where the relics of St. James are located, it's that the route you take reference um, contains places that are in his hagiography, in his the biographical story of uh, the saint in question. So whereas the Hajj grew as a single unitary pilgrimage idea, um, in the Latin Christian world, there came to be many, many possible pilgrimages. Pilgrimages were something you could collect, particularly as a nobleman. Um, you could follow a number of pilgrimage routes in your life and bring um, your retinue to carry your stuff. And you could do parts of the route on your knees. You could crawl parts of the route. And these pilgrimages were increasingly elaborated. Um, and of course, um, Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales is emblematic of this, right? The idea that here we have English people making a pilgrimage in England, three times to St. David's, as good as once to Jerusalem, nicely said. So 
That was the definition of pilgrim. And that remained the definition of pilgrim and pilgrimage until um, really the 19th century. The label, the Pilgrim Fathers, is much like the Columbus myth. It's an idea that was generated not at the time that the so-called Pilgrim Fathers arrived, but at the time that America became interested in intentional national myths to describe their country in certain terms. Yes, and our team raises this point. I don't think there is any religion descended from Protestantism um, that has better recapitulated Catholic ideas of pilgrimage than not just the LDS Mormons, but even the Community of Christ Mormons. Uh, and I think yeah, if you want a sense of the complexity and the difficulty of negotiating pilgrimage in medieval Europe, any North American can go to Nauvoo, Illinois, or Kirtland, Ohio, and watch different Mormon denominations negotiating the sharing of sacred space that references their 19th century past. And so um, this is all comprehensible to us. What the hell did Americans call these people the Pilgrim Fathers for? The Puritans who moved and settled Massachusetts and other parts of New England never, never thought they were engaged in a pilgrimage. They thought they were engaged in founding towns, which is what they went there to do. So right away, this exposes the degree to which so much of the, Amer of the history of, the, of British North America and the early American Republic is retconned. It's retconned in the 19th century in order to fit into a myth that's being rapidly generated, uh, largely at the state level. So the first thing we need to say about the Pilgrim Fathers is they journeyed a long way and they journeyed for a holy purpose, but they didn't understand what they were doing to be pilgrimage. Now, why is that? Well, pilgrimage is about returning to an idealized past by returning to a point in space-time that references that idealized past. When people perform the Hajj, they're going to Mecca to reconnect with Muhammad's journey in the seventh century, where Muhammad lived, what he did. When Mormons go to Kirtland or Nauvoo or Carthage or, um, or uh, Kumora, north of uh, near Palmyra, New York, they're going to a point in space that references a point in time that's part of their founding narrative. Now, what the people we call the Pilgrim Fathers are doing was in fact the dead opposite. What they were doing was something I talked about a little bit last episode. They were imposing holiness on a geographic location that had previously lacked that holiness. They were not engaged in pilgrimage. They were engaged in colonization. And I wanna pause here for another wee etymology thing. The term colony was also radically redefined following American independence. Uh, people had not really referred to uh, the Spanish and English colonies or French colonies of the New World as colonies. They had referred to them as plantations. They had referred to them as corporations. They had, occurred, of, uh, they had referred to them as various things. And that's because colony had a pre-existing meaning. Rhode Island and Providence plantations. Yes, indeed. And we're getting back to Rhode Island fairly soon. So what did colony mean? Well, the term colony was developed um, 
in um, the ancient Mediterranean, it referred to groups of Greek or Phoenician speakers who would leave an existing Mediterranean city-state and go and found a, a city-state further away. And the reason, yes, Carthage being a premier example of a colony that became something else. Um, I think it would be more, because Carthage is so exceptional, I think it's more salutary to think of Massilla or Marseille as the prototypical Mediterranean colony. Greek speakers left a city-state where they felt they weren't getting a good deal. And what was axiomatic in people's understanding of what a colony was, was the idea that it was politically independent from the state that the people who founded it came from. So the colonization of the ancient Mediterranean and Black Sea was really about a set of social movements that, that founded independent states outside of the jurisdiction of the state they came from. And this, I think, is the, is the phenomenon that the so-called Pilgrim Fathers sought to replicate. They sought to become old school, Mediterranean or Swahili coast style colonists that by moving to a new place, they would gain political independence that they could not achieve in the place from which they came. And that very much is, um, and there was of course something that fueled this, something I talked about a bit in the Holy American Empire course. Um, the people who had this political theory, not everybody had this political theory. Now, Hernan Cortez had that theory, and he based the founding of Veracruz on Spanish law, which states that law emanates from the municipality and transfers upwards towards the king. That was not a political theory that existed for French or English people. French and English people who sought to create old school colonies in the new world did so because of an exciting religious and intellectual movement that inside Protestantism was called Cal Calvinism, and inside Catholicism was called Jansenism. And the idea uh, of this comes out of um, John Calvin, the great uh, Swiss reformers idea, uh, his exegesis of a key part of the New Testament. Now I'm not great on the New Testament uh, in terms of exact quotation, but it's that, it's that piece about whenever more than two of my followers are gathered, this is the church. And John Calvin didn't just take this to be a religious principle. He understood it to be the principle of civil government. Calvin did not believe in separation of church and state in the way that we do. Uh, we can trace ideas like that to him, but it's a real stretch. There we go. That's what, uh, whatever two gather in my name, I am there also. That's, that's exactly right, RT. So Calvin believed that this is what all civil government should emanate from, as well as religious authority. And Calvin sought to fuse those things in his governance of Geneva. Now, Calvin was also deeply concerned with questions of consent. And so he strongly believed that if you were not in accord with the people who lived near you, you should found another community with people with whom you were in accord. And it's this new way of thinking about the Bible that reignites this ancient Mediterranean spirit of political independence. So the people we think of as the Pilgrim Fathers unquestionably went to the New World to create communities that were democratic, theistic, and um, holy. 
Now, many people describe these individuals, and certainly the Pilgrim Fathers narrative is full of this, as religious refugees, that they left England because they were facing persecution there. And that is largely false. Um, the periods of peak Calvinist migration from England were the times when the Calvinists controlled England. Um, as you, those of you who've read the David Cressy readings know, um, the English would much rather kill and punish dissidents than expel them. They didn't really like the idea of expelling dissidents ever. Even the Australian experiment was about expelling people who had no political agenda and were just violent assholes. So this, um, so the English state, so what happened is when Pur the Puritan movement had power in court, whether under Oliver Cromwell or under uh, Puritan sympathizers, like um, um, what's his name, Henry's son, the one before uh, Mary. Anyway, uh, Edward, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, or Elizabeth. The point was that when the Puritans had favor in court, they would use that power to increase the number of Puritans who could go to Massachusetts and be granted substantial political control and concessions there. So what that meant is that if you were going to Massachusetts um, as an English person in the 17th century, what you tended to find was there was the big city, Boston, which was full of all sorts of people, largely a military dictatorship, um, but one that was full of lots of, you know, randy, desperate young men uh, working as whalers, loggers, shipwrights and the like, cutting down the white pine that was needed for the big ocean-faring ship masts. Um, but then as you moved out into the rest of Massachusetts, even just a few miles north to Salem, what you found were intentional Puritan communities where the big people in town were Puritans, um, who had built their religious cred back in England and brought their money over and brought their power over to run these towns. And they were the local notables who sat on the town councils. And the people in those towns were often not themselves religious enthusiasts or dissidents, but would adopt the Puritan traditions and Puritan language in order not to run afoul of these often quite totalitarian local governments. Now, what actually produces what I, I would call utopian communities in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and the um, Northeast of America is not uh, people from England going over to found a town and create their utopia. Those people are largely establishment figures. They're often merchants that might have radical religious views, but these are not people of great religious imagination. These were not great religious experimenters. However, because of the totalitarian nature of these towns, the towns produced utopians. And this is where we get to Rhode Island and the figure of Roger Williams. Right, Roger Williams was a person of great religious conviction who had to flee Massachusetts and ask England to create a separate colony in Rhode Island and in Providence plantations because he was a hunted man. He needed to create jurisdictional boundaries to keep the Puritans away from him. And this and there was lots of religious irregularity because many of the people who moved into these towns um, were young men who had a career in logging or whaling who were wanting to settle down and find a nice girl. And so the ones who couldn't fit in were often bounced out of these towns. And of course, this is one of the things that accelerated the colonization of Massachusetts. 
because whenever there were serious splits in Puritan communities, the minority would hive off and create a new town because that was the model for dealing with dissent within Calvinism. And that's why ironically, Massachusetts very quickly comes to have an established church that everyone in the state has to be a member of, the Congregationalist Church. If you're not a Congregationalist, you don't belong in Massachusetts, you have to flee the jurisdiction. If you wanna create a non-Congregationalist town that the Massachusetts legislature approves of, uh, then um, yes, uh, RT had, had posted small business tyrants. I think that's very much the case. I think, I think Trump's organizers are really cut from the same cloth, right? It gets back to the meat draw. So one moment, I have to take this call. Hello. Hi. Um, I sent you a text. Um, Jacqueline's picking them up. They've figured it out without us. All right, I'll, I'll see you tonight. Okay. So, um, uh, yeah, there's, um, so Massachusetts, although not relative to England, but relative to most things, is a very conservative place. And it's people who escape from Massachusetts who are really the first American utopians. And we see this in Roger Williams' project. Now, I had the good fortune to live in Providence, Rhode Island, and one of the, my favorite things about Providence is that it contains First Baptist Church. Now, every town has First Baptist Church, but that's actually the First Baptist Church, period. Uh, Roger Williams founded it uh, in the 1630s. Uh, and he had to create a whole new religious denomination for his utopia. And his utopia was about what Voltaire would later condemn as enthusiasm, um, a religious movement that was interested in the emotional experience uh, of union with God. Now, Williams had really hoped that this would lead to the mass conversion of indigenous people. And it mostly did not. Uh, like so many European colonists who would follow, he had a very good idea of what sort of people indigenous people were. And the less you got in the way of that idea, the better off you were in dealing with Roger Williams. But this also does point to another set of projects that is taking place within Massachusetts. Although it's very hard to find within the state of Massachusetts, a true utopian project. I mean, there are certainly Puritan projects that seek religious unanimity and uh, a prayerful life and high levels of social control. But these are largely about inscribing on the American landscape things, ideas from England. The exception to this are, is places like Martha's Vineyard, uh, what were called praying towns. Praying towns were um, the congregationalist equivalent of a process that was already unfolding in Spanish America called congregacion. Uh, as the virgin soil epidemics ripped through indigenous communities and radically reduced their viability as individual communities, um, there was a desire on the part of many Europeans, contrary to the horseshit you hear in Canada these days mostly, um, to preserve the lives of indigenous people. Uh, there was tremendous interest in that. And not just an altruistic interest on the part of Christians who wanted to convert indigenous people before they died so they could deliver up souls to the Lord. Not just on the part of Christian humanitarians who 
existed throughout the history of the Western Hemisphere, but also on the part of anyone who gave a damn about um, the labor force they were going to use to exploit the area in question. Nobody wants their labor force to die. If you're making people work for you at gunpoint, it's quite inconvenient if you have to shoot most of them or most of them die of natural causes, because then you have to go and import very, very expensive Africans, many of who die in the Middle Passage, right? So this idea that it was somehow profitable to let lots of indigenous people die during the conquest is really a, just an incredibly dubious thing about our narrative. Now, these praying towns were not primarily about an indigenous labor force, although certainly indigenous people there did produce significant food surpluses and the like. The idea was that whereas the Spanish practice of congregacion um, was about selecting an indigenous aristocratic lineage to run an indigenous town based on the pre-colonial language and based on pre-colonial ideas of authority. Um, English people, at least congregationalist English people thought differently. They felt that they should be the leaders of praying towns. And so, uh, what would happen is praying towns would be assembled um, with indigenous, um, one moment, sorry, I have to check these calls. Hello, hello, third try, hello. Who am I speaking to? Um, if this is, uh, I'm sorry, I, this is a very inconvenient time to talk. You'll have to contact me tomorrow. Okay, thanks very much. Please call me in the morning. Right. Um, so praying towns uh, were very different. Um, a praying town was typically led by a uh, English Christian man of the cloth who uh, might or might not be married, often was married, and often sought to use their domestic household as the exemplary template that the indigenous people who had moved to the town um, would uh, want to uh, match. Now, why did indigenous people move to these towns? Well, primarily so that they wouldn't be attacked by other Christians. Uh, that would be a main thing. They wouldn't have their land stolen because suddenly there was a man of the cloth protecting their town. Some, of course, also saw Christianity as a way of explaining what was happening to them and a way of mitigating the damage um, that their communities were experiencing. So there are many very sincere people who moved to praying towns some were primarily motivated by a desire for safety. Others were motivated by a sincere religious conviction or a sincere religious curiosity. Um, others, um, and Martha's Vineyard's a prime example here. The other great thing about praying towns is they tended to be isolated. And isolated places were less likely to be hit by the epidemics. And that's a very important consideration uh, when you're living through the kind of demographic holocaust that these folks were. So what I want to suggest is that, yes, we do see utopias emerging as a result of the Pilgrim Fathers' arrival, but at one remove. The attempts at creating radical utopian communities that might seek to hold goods or land in common, that might seek to aspire to new forms of social unity. Um, these did exist, and they tended to exist in places um, where people had fled the Pilgrim Fathers to set up these idealistic communities, because the Pilgrim Fathers were largely um, successful members of the English bourgeoisie who had come over to set up an operation 
and govern people in a way that was fairly consistent with how people were governed back in England. So I don't go into great detail on any of the individual praying town projects. Um, what I want to set up, though, is the idea that America as a utopian site begins to emerge in the English speaking tradition in the middle of the 17th century. And it emerges out of reaction to a generation of Puritan rule in the North. In the Southern US, I wanna make very clear, and in the English Caribbean and elsewhere, there is no utopian project to be found. There's no utopian attempt in Virginia or Spanish Florida or um, these various places. And we, don't, we won't see attempts at utopian projects in the new world in the Spanish empire really until the, um, um, we'll, they'll start appearing in the 1540s. We'll talk about them the next time, but they're very much uh, based on this praying town idea. The idea that European, people of European extraction would come to the new world and try and set up a utopia is very, very off the map until the 19th century. Um, the utopian attempts that we see earlier by Puritans or Jesuits or Franciscans tend to be projects that involve the governance of indigenous people, not the governance of Europeans. And that comes out of the larger religious context. Remember that there's a broad consensus that the new world is unlike the old world and that indigenous people are special in some way. Maybe they're not subject to original sin. Maybe they're not subject to uh, various other things that have tainted Europeans. And that's why we see, even in the case of Roger Williams, who fails really to form praying towns of indigenous people, despite his desires to, all of the utopian imaginary is pointed at governing indigenous people, not pointed at governing Europeans. Uh, and I think that's quite telling that Europeans see in the first centuries, the chance to be different in the new world as contingent on rejecting key tenets of Europeanness itself. So uh, that's my that's my intro. Questions, comments from people. So it seems like the whole sense of the utopian projects was something that that wasn't a motivator until quite late. That's what we're getting. We're leading up to. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I think people are interested in creating utopias from the from really from the 1540s onwards, but these utopias are pointed at indigenous people, not at the possibilities of how this new place can change how European people behave. Um, that idea, um, I'll argue later, really comes out of the liberal revolutions that the ideology of the colonists has to undergo profound shifts before they start seeing themselves as subjects of utopian projects. Hmm. Jonathan is still at work having to type, so uh, I'll just anticipate uh, Results of the typing. Um, uh, Michael. Yeah, I had a quick question. You were talking about the um, that common uh, narrative about the you know Puritans are escaping persecution, and that's why they Plymouth Rock the whole story. And um, I got a little sidetracked there. You said that they weren't persecuted and being sent over to do work they were just being killed outright instead so weren't they just fleeing the killing 
And that's why uh, they no, came no, over? That, there was very little execution of Puritans except under Mary, right? There's the brief Bloody Mary period. But what that period's associated with is cutting off emigration. Mary didn't seek to send Puritan, uh, didn't seek to push Puritans towards the new world through death and punishment. She went, well, we have to trap them here and kill them off. So the governments that let Puritans leave England are the governments that like Puritans the most. And the governments that don't let Puritans leave England are the governments that like them the least. So the common pure, so Puritans move to the new world in the largest numbers under um, Edward VI, um, Elizabeth, and Oliver Cromwell, because- but Even if the governments like them, but, but what's their motivation to leave if they have a government that likes them? Because they see themselves as annexing more territory to that government and enlarging their political power by becoming lords in the new world. Ah, here we go. So is this, is this more like you uh, your own franchise? Yeah, like yeah. you're uh, it's like it's like, why would I want a shitty uh, lordship in West Ireland when I can go to the other side of the planet where El Dorado is? Uh, no, no, they're like pretty any... much people who are in the queue for Ireland. They take Ireland too. The key thing that they want is, um, the problem is though that their power is more fettered in Ireland. That the constitutions under which these early American colonies are running give sweeping powers to municipal governments. That's what attracts them. The fact that their municipal government can kill people, can do anything it wants pretty much if you're outside of Boston, that you have unfettered theocratic control over people. Whereas Ireland is far too complicated. You can't just create a blank slate and boss people around however you want. So, um, but at the same time, you do get to kill a lot of people in Ireland. But these guys, um, anyway, so the Pilgrim Fathers tend to be um, fairly wealthy, well-connected people who, um, who know that when they get to the new world, and they set up their town, that they'll get a seat in the House of Burgesses uh, of, the of the colonial jurisdiction. That they'll sit in the legislature, they'll be the autocrat of their town, and they'll get to do pretty much what they wish, which is mostly work um, and build their businesses, build their families. Um, yeah, so these are like ambitious small town mayors who want to go out there. Yeah, that's that's where this is starting to sound is it's a lot more like, um, you know, I want to do some prospecting and a little gambling and my my uh, chances of success in the army are kind of shit. So, hey, here's, have you heard of the new thing? Let's go do the new thing. Now, now that also does describe the common people in these towns. And these are perhaps the most interesting people. Um, and they're really like, one of the most important lessons that the American project teaches us is that men go to church to find women. Um, like that's the central religious motivator of like the American experience. Churches are full of women. We don't have the women we desire. We're going to sit through this thing because later we might have some fun. That's um, so while the elites of these towns tend to be very sober, very somber, very unfun people, the people who come to populate the towns are rough and tumble young men like the ones you're describing. And they move into these towns and pretend to be Calvinists to get women. Uh, because another feature of this is the British government has no interest in letting women go to the new world. If you want to move European women, English women to the new world, you need a lot of connections. And the Pilgrim Fathers want to do that. 
So if you're a young man who's logging or whaling, um, you know, and um, you uh, uh, are looking to, you know, take your gains from these very high-risk, high-mortality activities and invest them, those young men come as supplicants to these towns and they take on the religious sensibilities and affectations of the town's elites so that they can gain access to the English women that, the, that only these Puritan elites would have the power to bring across the Atlantic. Um, right, and the story in the South is very different, right? The South is every bit as much of a sausage fest. Uh, and the, the difference is that in the South, nobody's importing English women. And so there, there's the ethnogenesis of this group we call white trash, the descendants of indentured servants and the indigenous women they raped. So that's, um, that's the other model. But in the North, you do have those dudes but they are faking it, at least for the first generation. Maybe they'll raise their kids as actual Puritans, but for the first guys in these towns, this is all a mask. They are looking for a very particular thing, and they are willing to make a lot of sacrifices to get it. All right, now, um, interplay between utopianism and messianism. Once again, Jonathan, you signal where we're headed. Um, you need, one of the things that Puritans do is, especially once they're like brought into the national discourse, the idea that religious irregularity is laudable and American in character, that idea radically shifts between 1776 and 1800. Religious, uh, in the initial American constitution, right, protects the freedom of states and municipalities to proclaim their own religions. And so the, initially when they're designing the American Republic, they are trying to empower local governments to engage in religious coercion. And the idea of local religious coercion as a positive good is something Americans are very close to. They don't really start thinking it's bad until they start hating Mormons. Um, they have to change their entire constitutional order and reinterpret all the articles of their own constitution to decide that individual religious freedom is a positive good. Because the, the First Amendment is not about that. It's about the opposite. It is about preserving the right of the government of Maryland to expel or kill any non-Catholic inside Maryland. It's about preserving the right of the Pennsylvania Quakers to kick out non-Quakers and make non-Quaker religion illegal. Um, that's the original First Amendment. But something happens culturally and it starts happening. It's, there's a cultural movement that helps to create Mormonism and then there's the reaction against Mormonism. And it's a one-two punch that makes Americans believe that their country has always been about religious irregularity and religious freedom. And of course you need a lot of religious irregularity before people can start proclaiming they're the Messiah. And that I think is where Jonathan has very helpfully pointed us. You need insanely high levels of religious freedom for messianic cults to even get off the ground. The seedbed, the, it, it, is, it is odd, but if you look at the environment around the Bar Kokhba revolt, right? It's this decision. It's this decision to not restrict religious freedom after destroying the Herodian temple. And it's a very conscious decision, right? And it's only after Bar Kokhba that there's this reaction. But Messianic cults need a certain amount of wriggle room in the civilization to get going. And if they don't have a certain minimal level of freedom, that's quite difficult. 
So messianism certainly becomes a possibility in the early 19th century as we see the original interpretation of the First Amendment starting to break down. Okay, um, other questions or comments on today's stuff? Okay, now um, I see we're running a, a little shorter than usual and I, I wanna reassure you all that these classes are only going to get longer as I become happier in my apartment and as we actually start moving into the stuff that I wanted to cover in the course. I think it's really important if we want to understand um, American utopianism to recognize how new and contingent it is and to sort of undermine some of our narratives. So we're going to be changing gears after the weekend and we're going to start talking about not about what American utopianism is not, but what it is. And um, that, uh, that will be the focus. Um, so I'm going to do one last check-in here with everybody um, to see if, uh, if people are all right with that. Jacob and I are finally going to caucus over the weekend now that they've hooked up the internet in my home, which my goodness makes a difference. It was very difficult operating out of a Ricky's restaurant for so long. Uh, but uh, no more Ricky's. Uh, we're back here. And uh, nothing is going to stop me starting on time uh, five days hence on Monday, if that's all right with everyone. All right. Quite all right. Goodbye, fellow humans. We will see you in five days after, after Bye -bye. many 